Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to do a little bit of a, a recap. There was, um, I know last week was a little deep and kind of reflecting on last week a little bit with, with the new website. I've been putting out some, uh, if you go to the new website and you scroll down, you'll see kind of some of the follow-up thoughts that I have with the Hebrews and the Romans series. I've just been kind of adding ideas and thoughts and meditation on there and uh, in asking April, sometimes I'll ask April, was that, was that okay? Was that over, you know, was that too deep or not deep enough? I feel like there are some things that I definitely want to touch on during the recap uh, portions because that will help us move forward. Last week we started to look at Jesus is better than the angels and there were five ways we saw from verses uh, 4 through 14. And we only got through the first uh, reason. We only got through verse uh, 5 last week, so we will be starting in verse 6 tonight. But as a recap of Hebrews, we need to kind of understand, and and this I will do uh, many times, is I'll bring us back to kind of the purpose behind the writing of Hebrews. Here you have... um, a saved Hebrew, a Jew, uh, many believe this is Paul writing. I believe it may be Paul. Um, but he's writing to Jewish believers and to the Jews in general. And what he is writing to them to do is to consider Jesus and how he is the fulfillment and the finality. And he has brought in the new covenant. Jesus, by his own blood, has ratified the new covenant. There is no other way but him. And so you can flee to him. Uh, You can go to him with all assurance, all faith. You can come to him. And the the Hebrews is filled with warnings. We're going to see these warnings. And these warnings are, don't fall back into Judaism. Don't fall back into the Mosaic law. Don't fall back into those old systems of things. Now, why would the Hebrews be tempted to go back into the old law, the the Judaism? Well, there are several reasons. And we know just historically and and speculatively that we can see, we know they're being persecuted, first of all. Uh, Christianity has a long history of being persecuted. Uh, We saw that all through Acts. We established that. There is also cultural pressure. Now imagine being a Jew and you're saved, Lord saves you, and now you've got to make a decision to alienate your family, the friends you grew up with, the whole culture you're used to, the food you eat. Your daily schedule has all been changed now because the Lord has changed your heart. And by grace through faith, you see this. Also, there was the fact that Judaism was a legal religion in the Roman Empire. And so they had the security of the Roman Empire. They had the prestige of being a Jew in the Roman Empire. But of all the ways that Paul, uh, I'm going to say Paul, has warned them not to fall back into Judaism. And, you know, I got to thinking about that. Now, we don't know too many people that have went into Judaism, what's called the Messianic Jews. I've... I had my life, I've known a couple 
And I don't know if you all have known a couple where they've gone, they've, it seems like they've departed the faith. They say they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they wanted to adapt all of these uh, Jewish laws or traditions, the old covenant, the Mosaic law. And here's the thing that you have to understand is you can somewhat understand a Jew doing it, but I, for one thing, cannot understand a Gentile doing it when they were never under the Mosaic law to begin with. You know, that's what Paul said in Romans. Rather you're in the law, whether you have a law or you're without the law, you're outside of the law, we know that all are condemned, that none of us are righteous, but Paul would make the distinction of those who have the law versus those who, who do not have the law and are a law unto themselves. He's talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were never under the Mosaic law, but yet we have Gentiles, we have a white boy from Kentucky wanting to become a Jew. And so, you know, and the thing that is sad to me is, you know what, I can with all my might, and I want to, and I love the people, and I love them, and these are people that I love, I could do no better job than the book of Hebrews trying to persuade them that that's not where, that you should not go back into that system. You should not go back into, Jesus is fulfilled. He's the final word. And that's what we see immediately, that God in the past had chosen different ways. Our God speaks. And our God had spoken in the past through various ways, through the prophets. But in these last days, now, since Jesus has come, has spoken by his Son. So here's the other part of Hebrews. Now, why start with the angels in verse 4 being so much better than the angels? And then he says, as he hath. Now, that, those three words, as he hath, launches the next two chapters of why Jesus is superior to the angels. And you have to ask, why? Why, why start with the angels? Now, Remember, they're writing, he's writing to Jews who know, knows the Old Testament. They know the law. I mean, they know it better than, uh, I don't know what your all's profession is. Whatever your profession is, the Jews knew the law better than your profession, whatever it is. I mean, they know it inside and out. So why include the angels? Well, you know, the Jews had a high, very high, lofty view of the angels. The angels, as we know, I mean, they put them right up there, right under God as created beings, but there's no higher being other than God than the angels. Now, how did God talk to Moses? How did God talk to the people if it weren't the prophets? Right. He talked to them through the angels. And so how did God give the law to Moses? Well, this is the angels. Paul and Stephen both said that the law was administered by the angels to Moses, who is the mediator of the old covenant. So they had a very lofty view of the angels as supreme beings. And so here the Son of God, and they say this Jesus of Nazareth, he's better than the angels. In that, the first thing we looked at last week, it was verse 5 or verse 4, as he hath uh, an, uh, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So I'm not going to re-preach last week, I promise. But I do want to, um, like I said, uh, last week we went through some deep stuff, and I was hoping to kind of at the end give you a clear view 
You know, we were kind of going through the weeds a little bit, and then I was hoping to clear it up. I want to just clear it up now. You, you have two views. You have the incarnational sonship of Christ, and you have the eternal sonship of Christ. Now, here's the thing. When you read verse 4, how come Jesus inherited a better name? Hasn't he always had a better name? So you could ask yourself, I don't understand this. So first of all, we have two challenges. First of all, we need to get into the mind of the Jew who's reading this and understand, maybe not as good as them, but somewhat get into the Old Testament. Now, he's getting ready to quote the Old Testament seven times. And we have also the challenge of seeing how these cults are taking these verses and they are just going way out into heresy. So those are our two challenges, to, to see how a Jew would interpret this and versus how you could misinterpret this. So when he says he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, first of all, what's a name? A name is in back then is their essence. It is who they are. And nowadays, we, there's not a lot of you know, meaning with the name. You know, I like horses, but I've never loved horses. That's what Philip means. So back then, though, it did. It meant you're who you were. I mean, your character, your essence. So Jesus' name, he has a more excellent name than they, but hasn't he always had an excellent name? And that's where those two views come in. Some say, well, who is Jesus? He's the Son of God, right? That's who he is. That's his name, because that's what it says, in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son, in verse 2. So Jesus is the Son. Now, when I say the Son, that meant something to the Jew. All throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah would be the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son, the Messiah, the Anointed One. They knew who the Son was. And so, um, didn't Jesus have that name before he was born? There's where people, uh, and for the majority, and, and I just want to wrap it up, yes. Jesus has always had the title of son in eternity past. He did not receive that title at birth. Okay? So it was not just the incarnation that he received that title. Jesus, did, there was always been a distinction in the Godhead since eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when, how did he inherit it then? Well, look at uh, verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That is a big verse where the cults will go into heresy. And uh, there's some more that we're going to ready to see. And he said uh, in the end of verse 5, And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So a lot of people believe, oh, he didn't receive the sonship title until his birth. That's what this day, that means in time, I have begotten thee. But last week, and that's where I wanted us to look last week, I wanted you to see the big picture, and here it is. Jesus has always had the name the Son of God. Always, since eternity passed. But at his birth, and more, it was manifested, it was revealed that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, 
That's what it means. This day have I begotten thee. Now, do you remember when Paul quotes this in Acts chapter 13? How did Paul quote this exact same verse that's in Psalms? He did it at Jesus' resurrection. Well, wait a minute. Isn't this talking about his birth? Yes. He uses the term, thou art my son. God has declared Jesus to be his son on multiple occasions during Jesus' earthly ministry. One was at his birth. He had a supernatural birth. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He was declared to be the Son of God. The, then the baptism of Jesus. The sky opened, the dove descended, and the voice came, and this is my beloved Son. God begotten him that day too. He declared him to be who Jesus already was. That's what manifested means, is I'm revealing something about you that already was, that has already existed. Then we, we move on through Jesus' ministry. So birth, baptism, and then we see the signs and the wonders which Jesus did. He says, uh, I and the Father am one. And if you don't believe my words, believe me for the signs that God testifies. Jesus declared he was the very Son of God. Then you have the Mount Transfiguration, which God said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. When else? And then, so also, the resurrection. So, yes, Paul was using this verse right. And yes, people who re refer to the incarnation of Christ are using this verse right. And yes, when they're talking about the baptism of, of Christ, yes, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Not only just his resurrection, but his ascension. And that's what it, in, up until this point, uh, at the end of verse 3, he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He's inherited a more excellent name than they. It's the same name he's always had, but it's been declared. Just like in Romans chapter 1, he was born after the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection with power. And again, he will one day be manifested at his return. Look at Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 8, because we are going to do the same thing. We are going to be manifested. I'm saved right now. I'm a child of God right now. But you all physically can't see that. I know I am. And I can tell you all day I am. But you physically cannot see it because it's not been manifested yet. It's not been revealed. Well, it was revealed that Jesus is the Son of God over and over and over. It, everybody could see it. And that's what that means in verse 5. Now, one of these days, the whole world will see it. Remember Romans chapter 8, when we receive our redemption, our bodies, to it, the, the adoption of our bodies. So, having said that, that is the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ is absolutely true. He's always been the son. But he, in these last days, we see verse 5, he was manifested. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, so that was the first way that the writer of Hebrews exalts Christ and says, he's better than the angels. Do not leave this system and go to the old system. Look at Jesus. He's better. And so... Verse 6, 
We'll start our next point. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. So not only is he better than the angels because of his name, but he's better than the angels because he is worshipped by the angels. Now there's a couple things we want to observe in verse 6. This is another verse which cults will take that away. The cults, like um, when I say like that in Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or other things, they'll say that Jesus was born or they'll say Jesus was created or they'll, they'll say that Jesus was an angel and they, they think that he was begotten. And so you can see how um, we have looked at both now. We've looked at the perspective of the Jew and we've looked at the perspective of, of misinterpretation. So verse 6 and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten. Now, to a Jew, what does that word mean? It means firstborn. Now, what does firstborn mean to us, who's reading this centuries later? Firstborn means physically, literally, the child that was born first. To a Jew, that's not everything a firstborn meant. The firstborn wasn't so much about when they're born in time. A firstborn was a title or a position of heirship. It was who receives the heir of the family. They were considered the firstborn. Uh, it is a title, position, and honor. We see that e, uh, Esau was firstborn, but Jacob had the heir. He was the firstborn. He had received the inheritance. Look at Solomon. Uh, Solomon, if you look at the genealogies, I think he's like 10th in the list. But yet he was the heir. He was the firstborn. And so that is verse 6 when he says, and when he bringeth in the firstborn uh, into the world, he say, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, I'm going to keep listing out all of these Old Testament quotes that he keeps uh, putting out here. But that right there, let all the angels worship him, is Psalm 97, 7. And it is commanded. God commands the angels to worship him, to worship the Son. God, as you all know, will have no other gods before him. He will not have any graven images made that you bow down to worship him. He commands the angels to worship the Son. He commands them to. And so we see that in Psalm 97, 7. Now here's also another interesting part in verse 6. Now you can take this a couple different ways. First of all, it could mean at, at uh, Jesus' birth. And he says, verse 6, and again when he bringeth in the firstborn into the world, which is interesting, that world cosmos is not, the, is not cosmos. It's, it's a different word, which means the inhabited earth. And you could take that to say, okay, well, he's definitely talking about the incarnation because that's when Jesus came into the earth. But it's interesting, the grammar, the Greek grammar there you can actually retranslate that and to make it that again in a different spot. First of all, it says, what you could say is when he again brings the first begotten into the world. 
So either it's talking about Jesus' birth, and when is God going to bring him into the world again? When's Jesus going to be coming into the world again at his coming, at his second coming? Because that verse 6, yes, you can, the, the grammar is kind of, I mean, you, I don't, if you read after good people, you're going to see this too. Uh, you can put that he's going to bring in the first begotten again into the world. Uh, so either way, um, the angels are to worship Jesus. If you would, turn over, keep your hands here, turn to Revelation chapter 5 with me. Revelation chapter 5. You know, one of the, uh, the most beautiful things I love to think about are the angels worshiping him at his birth. And it just, if you start, if you meditate on that and think about that, how a host of angels worship Jesus and saying Hosanna. I mean, they just, and they, it just, it always sends chills <laughs> down my spine that he's no sooner born. But, but look at this in, um, I'm just looking for a great place to start. They're all great places to start. Revelation chapter 5. Uh, I, I'm going to bring this up later, so I'm going to read it now. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Or oh, they worship the Lamb. The angels, ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands. Not just the angels, everything worships the Lamb. Everything worships Jesus. In heaven or in earth, below the sea, everything. And so he's greater. He is establishing Jesus' superiority to all things. 
and that he has he is to be worshipped. But in verses 7 through 9, not only does Jesus have a more excellent name and Jesus is to be worshipped, but he has a better nature. He is God. Verse 7, back in Hebrews chapter 1, And of the angels he saith, Who maketh... Now, I want to say this. And of the angels he saith, quote, he's quoting an Old Testament verse here, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? That's in Psalm 104, uh, 4. And, but unto the Son, unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There's a few things that we want to observe in these verses. First of all, he makes the angels spirits. Now we know that angels are created, and so they are different from the nature of God himself. They are spiritual uh, substances. They subsist in themselves, and they were made this way by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Elohim created the angels. And not only did Jesus create the angels, he owns the angels. The angels are his very possession. Now, uh, I like what John Gill says about they are ministers of flame of fire, and his ministers of flame of fire. The angels are ministers to God. They're ministers to Jesus, and they are as a flame of fire. And the fi- they are fire because it tells of their power, their force, and their swiftness. The angels are powerful. Um, from their zeal to I mean, the, the seraphims, but also angels will be the ones who execute the wrath of God. And so they are ministers also of flames of fire. They will descend in fire and they will also accompany Jesus when he returns to the earth. And so we also see that the angels, uh, the visual is a fire. Angels sometimes appear in fiery form. The chariots and the horses of fire, which carried up Elijah to heaven. And there were no other angels in these forms. Um, The Jews have this saying of the angels. All the angels, their horses are horses of fire and their chariots are fire, and their bows are fire, and their spears are fire, and all their instruments of war are fire. Now, in verse 7, he's giving us the distinction. He's giving us the nature of the angels. In verse 8, he's giving us the nature of the Son. What is the nature of the Son? The Son of God. This is from Psalm 45, 6-7. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This verse, there's a lot of verses that give us the deity of Jesus Christ, the eternality of Jesus, but this is one of the most emphatic, unapologetic, wonderful places to go to see the deity of Jesus. Because he is quoting a psalm in 45, but what is God saying unto the Son in verse 8? Who is God calling the Son? Thy throne, O God, is forever 
and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. He's calling the Son God. And, I mean, it is more than that right there. I mean, you think about all these other cults or just other, not just cults, but just the religions in general that think Jesus was just a good prophet or that he was just a teacher or he was just a man or he, he was an angel or he was this or he was that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Commit that to memory. That will show you more than any other place the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is all God. He is all God and he is all man. Because unto the Son he saith thy throne, O God, is forever. And so uh, the Father claimed Jesus as God in this verse. Jesus claimed himself to be God. In John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he had claimed that God was his Father, therefore making himself equal with God. Remember what we discussed last week? In the culture that a Jewish male, a, a, a heir, the son was equal to the father. And so in every kind of way to the Jews, when there was an adult man or an adult a child, they were considered equal to the father. And so when Jesus says that God is my father, that God, Jesus was making himself equal with the father. And that's another reason we live in the eternal sonship. Um, there was never a subordinate, Jesus never took on the subordinate role in eternity past. I forgot the I forgot to say that, but that's big. That's one reason why people believe in the incarnational sonship, because they, they want to refuse that Jesus was a subordinate in the Godhead as son. Because we know that when Jesus became flesh, he prayed and he was in submission to the Father. He prayed to the Father, didn't he? He was in submission. He came in the form of a man. And so uh, we're getting ready to find out that he was made a little lower than the angels. Um, but... Um, in the Jewish culture, saying, I'm the Son, you made yourself equal with the Father. And so he can be the Son in eternity and be equal with the Father because that's who he is. He's co-equal in the Trinity. John chapter 10 says, Jesus said this, I and my Father are one. John chapter 10, verse 33 uh, the Jews said, right before they went, they tried to stone him, and the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou hast said, being a man, you make thyself God. Jesus claimed to be equal with the Father, to be God. So not only does the Father proclaim Jesus as God, right here, Jesus himself proclaimed him Self to be God, and the apostles also claim Jesus to be God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in verse 9, his nature is continued. Now Jesus is not just righteousness, but it says he loves righteousness and hates iniquity. And so that is his character, his actions and his motives. 
because Jesus loves righteousness, he hates iniquity. And as we conform to the image of Christ, don't you find that out to be true in your own heart? As the more you read the word of God, the more that you're falling in love with your Lord every day, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, the more you love righteousness and hate iniquity. As you're being conformed to his image, that's who he is. He hates iniquity. And he loves righteousness. But here it says, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. God the Father is the anointer. God the Son is the anointed. You know what Messiah means? The anointed one. And so Jesus has been anointed and that with the oil of gladness, he doesn't mean literal oil. Oil is referred to as the Holy Spirit in here uh, throughout the Word of God. That is what the oil is. And then fellows, if you look at the Greek, it's companions or associates. Now, some think this is man he's talking about, that he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit above, uh, with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Could be man. Uh, the companions could be the angels. Could be the saints. Uh, we're not really sure of the exact uh, meaning of the fellows, but the context, he's been talking about angels this whole time. So if the companions that he has, he's above them. And so in verse 10, so not only did we see he's got a more excellent name, he's worshipped, and his nature is deity, but his existence is eternal in verses 10 through 12. And thou, who's he talking, now where's thou? Thou is referencing verse 8. Who's he referencing in verse 8? But unto the Son, he saith. So verse 10, thou is referencing verse 8, the Son. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hand. There's another psalm, Psalm 102. All this is Psalm 102, 25 through 27. They shall perish but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Now in the Psalms, instead of shall not fail, it says shall have no end. Thy years shall have no end. So, in verses 10 through 12, he is talking about Jesus' eternal existence and his immutability. He cannot change who he is. And uh, in verse 11, he talks about, well, verse, end of verse 10, he's talking about the heavens or the works of his hands. Remember in verse uh, 3, we saw that he is, the Creator, Colossians chapter 115, He has created all things, and by the word of His power. Now, what do you do with things? And that's what He says, that they wax old as doth a garment in verse 11. Well, creation is something that needs to be changed. That's the whole reason that we have to die. We have to sow our bodies, right? It, corruption cannot inherit incorruption. We live in a corruption. And that's what creation right now is, is corruption. And so it has lost its beauty. It has lost its usefulness, just like an old 
garment does. But what's Jesus going to do? Now notice, he doesn't say he's going to annihilate the earth. He's he's not going to annihilate it. He's going to change it. He's going to make it new. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so we see that he pre-existed, that his, his existence is eternal. But in verse 12, he says, Thou art the same. Oh, how many scriptures are there where it says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty. Jesus says, I am the Almighty. He's the same. He was that which is, which was, and which is to come. In verse 13 through 14, we see that he's eternal kingship. Verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And that's from Psalm 110.1. We've had seven quotes from the Old Testament in these last 11 verses. That's a lot. You think he was trying to do something? You think by quoting all of the Old Testament about Jesus, that he was trying to pursue who his readers were? Uh, So he says, but to which of the angels? God at no point said this to any angel. Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So the angels are ministers to God, to Christ, and to us. They're ministering spirits. They're created beings. And the Messiah it was who those words were spoken to in Psalm 110. No angel has ever been promised a place at God's right hand. The angels are and will always serve and worship. They will always serve and worship the one who sits upon the throne. Now, in chapter 1 alone, we have seen that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels in each and every way. We went through a lot there in in chapter 1. The superiority of Jesus is proven over and over. His name. Now, think of this acronym. N-W-W-A. His name, his work, his worth, and his attributes. How has Jesus' name been proclaimed in Hebrews chapter 1? His name. Well, he's been called the Son. He's been called God. He's been called Lord. He's been called the First Begotten. Now, what about... His work. He is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He rules all things. He's the heir and the possessor of all things. He's the one who has purged us from our sins and He's the King who reigns eternally. That's His work. Now what about His worth? All the angels, all things in heaven, all things in earth, all things under the earth, all bow down, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Now remember what I said, remember what we read in Revelation? How that the Lamb that had come up, and He was the only one found worthy to open the seals of the book. 
Do you remember how it described the lamb? Not only the root of Jesse, and the, the, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he had ten horns, and he ha- or seven horns and seven eyes. Seven means perfect. The eyes mean his omniscient. He is all-knowing. The horns means Jesus' total power. Anytime you see horns, the symbolism's kings. There's always kings symbolized with the horns. The, the lamb was slain, as also seen. Not only did he have power, but he was also slain for us. He was slain that we may be forgiven. So his worth, but with his attributes, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He is the king. He is immutable. He's eternal. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. This is Jesus. He will always be superior to everything, including the angels. And chapter 2, verse 1, we won't talk about it long. What do we do with this information? It was a beautiful chapter, wasn't it? I almost want to do it all over again. What do we do with this information? What does he tell us? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. He starts warning. Here comes his warnings. And just a beautiful study. I pray the Lord has richly blessed you Hebrews chapter 1, yes, he's, he is superior to the angels. He's superior to all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the study. Father, thank you for revealing to us through your Holy Spirit, Jesus. Thank you for revealing to us our sins. Thank you for revealing to us, Lord, having grace and mercy upon us and saving us by your redeeming love by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who has a name more excellent than any name. Even you have exalted his name, that every knee should bow, every tongue should confess, that he is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you for the instruction. Lord, may we leave this place, having it in our hearts and our minds, and our tongues of praise. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's please.